0: This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal Cast with your hosts Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal Cast and YouTube. <laughs> uh,
1: hey guys, welcome to a special episode of the Cabal Cast. I am your host Halt. I am Reptar, and today I am actually uh, without. Thirsty. Uh, I am at Anime Boston. We just finished day one, Friday. And I am talking with a friend of mine for the last uh, 13 years. I met him for the first time playing Astral Slide back when I was going to college in 2003. He was at my wedding. Uh, Mr. Jeremy Muir. Uh,
2: Hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Jeremy Muir. i uh, been around Magic for, boy, quite a long time. Since the mid-90s, I kind of got into anything like that. Uh, the past ten years of my life, I've been uh, working for a good portion of it with a company called Troll and Toad, and I currently am their senior magic product specialist, which means I run their magic gathering department.
1: Okay, uh, and so, you know, as you know, the, the department head, you're in charge of repricing and in product intake, like what it. What exactly does does that mean for um, somebody? You know,
2: we, we make, uh, make, uh, I make all the strategies that we want to use and employ in the system that we use. I take care of some of the things like, you know, uh, when an item gets spoiled, it gets us on the site. I make sure our category headers try to look better. Um, and I try to make sure things make sense for their pricing and stuff like that. Definitely handle some repricing. I handle some of the personal repricing myself. I have a team of guys who are great, who help do it as well. And, um... There's a lot of pieces that involve with anything to do with magic, you know, trying to develop our game and such. Yep. Not really marketing per se. We have a marketing team that does that type of stuff, but the actual back-end part for the website.
1: Yeah. Uh, Now, you personally, you still go out to shows. Like, you know, we're here at uh, Anime uh, Boston. Our backup for this event, if we didn't, was going to be uh, GP Niagara. But because you've been in this industry industry for so long, people not just in the northeastern part of the United States but all over the U.S. and actually even into... uh, Canada and China might have seen you at Grand Prix and but you stepped back from that role so you know guys there is a chance that if you went to a Grand Prix at any time in the last 10 years you've probably yeah. run into Jeremy at the troll and Toad booth or even just you know on the floor as he's hanging out with other dealers
2: oh yeah a lot of those guys at the shows you know it's more than just business for a lot of me and a lot of them become my friends yeah you know and sometimes I go to an event just to hang out with people get some food and have a good time. Um, granted, there are a lot of events I went to and worked. I haven't been doing as many Grand Prix as I did in the past, and um, that's just because of the price for and stuff like that. But I still do some events. Obviously, we're at Anime Boston, um, which is a great show for our company because we carry a diverse amount of games. Yeah. And I used to go to this show personally before I even worked for Troll and Toad. So it's got a soft spot in my heart. I always like coming here It's just... I don't
1: know. Yeah, AB's fun. It's a three, four hour drive from us, uh, from Vermont. So it's a a really easy show to to come down and see. And uh, you've been at GP Vegas's. You're at every Origins and Gen Con ever. You were at this past Gamma, this past PAX East, PAX Unplugged last year. So there's even a good chance that you guys. (laughs) Eternal Weekend. Yeah, Eternal Weekend. So, you know, even if you guys get out to some of these events, you know, and you stop by the the Troll and Tog booth, you might be able to see my man Jeremy in action. Yeah. But uh, you've worked for uh, more than uh, just uh, Troll and Toad, uh, since you've moved into Magic as a career. Uh, You've worked for uh, Ivory Tower, you had your own entity for uh, uh, some amount of time, Yep. uh, both uh, a little bit as Lychee Star. We were at uh, Grand Prix Worcester, the sealed event that Brian DeMars won. And uh, we were also out as uh, Savage TCG. And if you dig through my Twitter feed, you'll actually see a bunch of photos of me and my Savage uh, sweatshirt flying out to like Grand Prix, Nebraska. White
2: Star and Savage TCG are actually um, the same the same company in terms of uh, the tax identification number system. Yeah. So. <laughs>
1: So like, you've moved through the industry a lot, and you've changed uh, through companies. Some of them self-owned, uh, like we just mentioned, owned, and some owned by others. Uh, you know what? What kept you going? What kept you kind of moving? And when you say like, you know, you worked for Troll and Toad for a period of time, and then you stepped back a little bit to do your own thing, and then you came back to Troll, and you just you know kept plugging away in in the industry. Was that because you love the industry oh, yeah. so much? You just want to stay in the collectible and?
2: The- I, I love mathematics. That's my biggest thing. I like doing things with numbers, seeing trends. You know, and magic cards made sense. There was a point in my life when um, I, things weren't weren't in such a uh, best place for me and stuff like that, battling with the depression and uh, and battling with some things where I had a knee injury. And um, my friends introduced me to magic stuff like that, and I made a lot of friendships this way and friendships that to this day are people I'm still friends. And so it's always held a special part to me. But as you delve deeper deeper into magic, you see. It's, it's a numbers game. How much something sells for, how much something can go up to, and just playing the game itself. It's a mathematical algorithm when you're playing your deck and drawing certain cards and certain strategies you employ in your deck. Yeah. So there's a lot to the game that I enjoy. I enjoy playing with numbers. I could probably do something along the stocks line stuff like that. I thought about it at one point, but the card industry just seems like a, a good place to be. And as I said, I've met so many people who have become like friends for life for me, and they're even people I haven't talked to in ten years have nothing to do with magic. If I run into them somewhere and talk to them, I can have a conversation. We can talk about magic back in the day. We can talk about something else. Yeah, but it's always like a, a nice little centerpiece for things.
1: Yeah, I was getting a, a little more information from Jeremy the other day <coughs> when we were uh, driving around getting uh, set up for Anime Boston uh, about Gamma and some of the people that Jeremy ran into in Gamma are, are people from when you, you said you first basically started in the industry. Yeah. people that work for competitors that you might not have seen for a while, just like. Yo, come on out to the after party. We'll put you and the rest of your guys on the list.
2: Yeah. It was was an interesting place. Uh, Gamma is – there's structural stuff you can learn from a base level store and and different ways in the industry to become better. But there's also connections you can be made by meeting people. And some of it isn't getting to know someone as in how do we structure our corporate ways going forward. Some of it is just having an understanding of each other and learning from each other and making yourself each better or just – Having a good time, and later on, when there is business to be had or something like that, you already have a relationship where you know each other, how the person's going to react, stuff like that. And maybe you can do business. Maybe you can, you know, buy a collection together, or maybe you can uh, do something along those lines.
1: Building a better industry, yeah, in, in all regards, no, it, it, and it's great. Like a lot of people don't get to see that because they're on the outside looking in. They're you know they're, they play the game and they're funding the game through that. Or maybe they're a backpacker, so they don't actually get to see a lot of what goes on behind the scenes. They're not exposed to that, so they don't understand that there's uh, a lot of kind of helping hands behind the scenes and vendors helping vendors moving things around as appropriate because something might not work for you at Troll, but it works for Ben and Pete at Star City, for instance, and so you might move things around there. There are people with
2: different markets and different types of customers all over the place, all over the U.S., all over the world. So sometimes business you can do with each other that's beneficial for everyone. Yeah. You and don't have to always be the person who's making a killing and getting the other guy over. Sometimes you can sell an item or trade, you know, do, do a business where you get rid of an item and they get rid of an item, and you're doing a fair, equal value to each of you. Yeah. But you're each gonna get an item that's gonna better sell it for you guys. I've done some of that stuff. I'm not saying we do it all the time. I'm not trying to look at it every single day while I'm at work trying to do that. But there are definitely situations when you have a positive relationship with someone else in the industry. You can do some business that way, and it's, it's a really good thing.
1: The the last thing I want to I, I want to touch on on this topic before we switch over to talking a little more uh, about uh, you and your relationship with the game itself. Uh, I've mentioned this before, and so it has Jason. Uh, on Sunday at Grand Prix, players and uh, you know backpackers can expect vendors to lower their prices and and things just kind of work out that way for the for the players. But what a lot of people don't see is the vendor to vendor interaction on Sundays, which is actually one of my favorite parts of working at Grand Prix. Is when you see the first vendor start walking around with that one row or two row and hit the vendor. <laughs> next to them and say, okay, I can't, I bought this stuff, it's gas, but it's not my market. Sure. You know, what do you guys want from this?
2: Well, you know, as a vendor standpoint, when someone walks up to your roof and they want to sell send you a sell collection, they might have, you know, a ton of cards. And you want to buy a majority of those cards, but some of those cards just aren't going to be good for you. Yeah. Well when you start to run low on your finances for the weekend and what your budget is to spend on cards, you know I might keep buying stuff. Sometimes you turn some of those items or mm-hmm. sometimes you're just starting the process of selling the items early instead of waiting to post it online, you might try and go sell it to someone else. Yeah. And you might be able to get something out, some money to buy something you might whatever. This allows you to have bought the collection that maybe you wouldn't have done all the cards you needed um, to begin with by purchasing that and being able to move those items. Yeah. At a Grand Prix, it's, it's very easy to do something along those lines. Mm-hmm. With my company, I try to buy, uh, with, with Troll and stuff like that, we try to buy as much stuff as we need as possible, so mm-hmm. for the most part, we buy a lot of items that we want to bring back. Cause yeah. We're always hungry for inventory. It's a big company. It's a lot of items in stock. Oh, absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of items to fill. So. Um, but doesn't mean I haven't done business with other people before. It's definitely something that's very good and can be beneficial to all. So, yeah. like I you said, on Sunday, some people just run out of money. Some people are play, busy playing. Like the show is winding down. But there's still business to be had, you know, amongst some people.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, moving away from strictly uh, vendor to vendor, uh, just vendor talk in general, uh, the next thing a lot of people kind of have a question about is speculation uh, in the vendor industry, but I also want to know uh, I, mean, I know about that, but a lot of people seem like to think that vendors speculate on things, but not just that, because you run the magic category a troll, but yourself like, do you speculate on cards every now and again Do you like just for personal,
2: sure, collection For personal, I have done a few cards here and there. Honestly, it's more of a game. It's just fun, I'm having. A lot of times I'll buy something because I think it's cool. I like the card. I don't even have a strategical point to it. I don't have a trend I'm following like that. I'm just like, this is a great card, you know? I bought a bunch of uh, Intunes from Ultimate Masters and uh, some Sizing Insults and some Woodfall Primuses very recently. And it's just because I think those cards are cheap and they're good yeah. now i have infinite time that i allow myself to be able to do anything with those to make money and you know what i may never make money with those items and i'm okay with that it's not my business i'm just playing around um from the business side of things
1: yeah this is for troll and toad now guys yeah, just- it's
2: what, at work we don't you know i know that there's a perception out there that some of the biggest companies in the world will be holding stuff back or trying to buy out something and you know, I can't say for verify for sure that someone's not doing that, but a lot of times I think the line is confused because there are people out there who are more, I think the terminology would be used as a backpack vendor, Yep. but they're the ter- person who goes to your finite magic at, a, at a, a large store nearby, or they go and trade on the floor at a Star City event or something like that, and they have a lot of cards. You know, they're walking around with binders worth $20, 30 dollars 100000 in cards. And they pick up cards that they think are going to go up and stuff like that. What sometimes triggered, and sometimes these guys will have their own booths at an event. Mm-hmm. So it feels like, oh, if they're doing it, then the big guys doing. it. My business is, you know, for a troll it is we have a huge website, sells a ton of cards, a lot of different games. We're one of the biggest in the world, and it's it's not questionable like in terms of our size overall between all the games: Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, HeroClix and many more.
1: Yeah, when, when people ask like what Troll and Toad is or what they do, like the little elevator pitch I like to give them is that if you can play it on a table, any <laughs> game Troll and Toad will sell it to you.
2: Troll and Toad is the largest online seller of Pokemon cards. The largest online seller of Yu-Gi-Oh. Cards, yeah. Largest yeah. online seller of hero Emblem. Largest online seller of Final Fantasy. Largest online seller of Dragon Ball Super. And Magic the Gathering were pretty good too. Yeah. So, that's just a good example of things, but in terms of the company We have a lot of items we always need, and the amount of items we sell on a daily basis is quite a few. And to be able to keep inventory coming in, even with our buy list, which is always buying stuff all the time, we do get a lot of items in on a daily basis from this. Every day we're receiving more cards. We go to some shows, we have collections we pick up and stuff like that, but we need to have items that are coming in and going back out all the time. So we don't have time to microanalyze and be like, this card's trending upwards and keep it." I just need to keep units going on the site so I can sell them. Because when I'm trying to sell an item, we're not trying to sell a playset of, like, a fetch land. You know, a Blood Meyer, I could take 200 of them, and I will sell them in a month, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or less. Two weeks, a week. Yeah. And that's, you know, then I need to go get more Blood Day somehow. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I can't hang on to a random item like that. I have to try and make sure it sells because... That's the whole nature of the business. I can't, if I have to microanalyze things to that level, I'll never be able to carry all the different products. There. There's a magic gathering alone, you know, Yeah, so.
1: and that's something you and I talked about earlier in prep for this was, uh, I, I mentioned in the first couple episodes, and I harp on it every now and again, I, I bought expansion expo- explosions, you know, very early on, and I, I never mentioned where I got them from. And I got them from Troll and Toad, because I wanted to remain agnostic. And I bought Troll and Toad out. They, Troll and Toad displayed 74 expansion explosions. And if you go look at other cards on the site at any point in time, sometimes they'll have much more than 74, upwards of 99, I think, might be the max visible.
2: They controlled up to 3-400,
1: yeah. yeah. So it's not like Troll was speculating on those cards. There were just 74 available to me, and then you said there were most likely more on hold.
2: Probably like 12 or something like that. We, what we do is we'll have a large percentage of those items in stock, and I'll have a very minimal base amount left of an item if it's a, let's say, a new release. Yeah. It's more common you're going to see items like that in new releases. I'm not going to be having a bunch of mirrored cards on board. Uh, but I'll have, like, new cards, you know, maybe uh, some, uh, you know, uh, maybe as far back as Rivals of Ixalan. Yeah. i but it's fine. Uh, You know, as far back as, like, Rivals of Ixalan, maybe some stuff, stuff that we're currently still opening for product and everything like that. Um... But I'll have some on hold, but it's a very low amount. And the whole point is, so that way, my s- I sell it all. The next day, I might put four more. The, the other four I have, the other two I have, the other eight or twelve I might have out, so that the next customer comes to the website can at least be satisfied by being able to purchase the item. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not taking like, well, this card might go up and have 50 on hold and 50 available. That's not the way we 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 do business. Yeah. You know, we're about selling as many possible units as possible. But I have to make sure I have. Some manage for the next customer, and we're talking about the amount of cards that we actually have in stuff like that holding, it's probably maybe 100 cards, 100 different items total at any given time, and it's some random cards, like Golgari, Guildgate, and one or else from, from, you know, like some basic set, yeah. because they're just items that we're going to want to have, and when I have 970 of them, well, holding 20 or 25 is not going to hurt anyone from buying the other 800, Yeah, you know? But uh, if one guy wants to come and buy a hundred, please go right ahead. Take them all. I'll still have a few more for the next whatever. And I said, generally, if it's a hot card, when like Hydroid Crazy was hot, mm-hmm. I don't have any I'm like, I have to wait for the next day to hope to receive some more from a buy list that just came in. So <laughs> yeah, yeah like those we, things that those things are selling right out the door as soon as we get them. You yeah, know? you'd
1: rather be churning inventory to to absolutely. buy more inventory because it's useless to just have that card sit there yeah, in absolutely. the background. Yeah. Uh, and you know. There's a lot
2: of people who come to our website, and they'll they will uh, not necessarily not like like we said like agnostic, but kind of not acknowledge that they where they purchase their cards, but they will buy stuff from us um, to get a chunk of cards for whatever the reason. If they just like the picture, they want to make a binder full of them, they want to invest on them and stuff yeah. like that. There's a lot of people who do that. Who I personally know who they know what they're doing, and you know what, it's great that they do whatever they want to do. Let them go ahead and do that and stuff like that. But we have a lot of inventory, yeah. and they they can purchase it when a set comes out. We open a lot of boxes. and We'll have a lot of some of the rares. So. Yeah,
1: I felt zero percent bad about buying out expansion explosion yeah, for going that day. For you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not the first time. And they were
2: what thirty five cents, right? Yeah, and I, I like that's six, our base. That's our bottom price for rares, and that's mostly based on the um, how much it takes for the labor of someone in the warehouse to pack and ship and and us to process it and sort all the cards, stuff like that. And we just sell any rare for $0.35. So that was a good card. That turned out to be a great card, you know? We didn't foresee it, uh, and uh, the market, we thought we were right in the market, and that card was trending upwards, and we're behind the times. And if I'm behind the times, go ahead and buy them all up. But my goal is to sell the cards. Yeah, Exactly. (laughs)
1: Uh, And, you know, we've talked about uh, acquisitions uh, through the online buy list. One of the things uh, people are kind of curious about is uh, can you tell us or what can you tell us informs those uh, buy list numbers that you guys have? So is it a combination of uh, how quickly a card that you put in stock sold out or is selling uh, combined with current price or is it like is it algorithmic or is it all just? Uh, guesstimation. Uh.
2: There's a part of control involved. Um, we when we look to price our cards. We pay attention to um, what controls how many we buy of an item. And um, if it, if I'm selling, you know, 30 of them in a span of a week, I have to plan ahead for what the next six weeks is. You know, so maybe that says I should be buying 150 of them. Mm-hmm. You know, or a hundred or or something where I can get an amount in that might be able to allow me to sell that again. So the speed in which the item is selling is definitely a factor. Um, if it's not selling, it goes down. This happens a lot with foils, where we we'll won't be buying a ton of foils. Now there is a bottom level where we still buy like a play set of a card or something, but it's also based on necessity. Yeah. If I've got 19 of some card in stock, and I don't, I only need to have like 18 or 20, it might only show one on the buy list. It might not be on the buy list at all. Because why, why would I want to buy something that I don't need when I have a plethora of items I do need.
1: Yeah, and a lot. Sometimes a lot of those items can be picked up in collections in person, either uh, at grand prix or contact buys too. So you don't need to sometimes worry you just, too much. Sometimes just give
2: it a couple days; it'll sell because we'll price it down to sell, and uh, I'll be buying them again next week. Yep.
1: <laughs> uh, and uh, still on the buy list, uh, we had a question about cards like uh, power and duels, things that some people think are illiquid but high priced. So let's not say power and duels because those are actually a little more liquid. Let's say things like uh, Drop of Honey, uh, Tabernacle at Pendlevale, the random legends cards that are worth infinite despite the fact that they see almost no play. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you control those numbers a little more for items that...
2: I specifically do because that's part of the items that i would be handling i handle a lot of our old uh style items to make sure that we keep up to date with them and stuff like yeah. that um i mean i want to buy them and i want to have a certain amount you know i want to have four or six nine in stock because we or not all those items while they seem weird why would anyone want to buy a land's edge yeah or something like that from legends um those items do actually sell pretty well and sometimes they don't sell in the places you think they are they might be selling to you know some place in europe Yep. Some place in Asia, some place in Australia. Because you guys do ship you know, worldwide. Yeah, we're all over the place. So we see a lot of different markets in the United States because a lot of those places that might buy it may not ever have had a chance to own that. So yes. And that sometimes when you see a market evolve and it's, it might go to a foreign country, it might go somewhere here. Sometimes it's just somewhere whatever. But a lot of these items do sell at some point. There are items that don't make sense that get to be worth money sometimes. But there's also a lot of times with like the older stuff, like... Again, a great example would be a card like ring of immortals where you look at it and you're in the vacuum. you're like why would anyone want this why is this you know worth as much as it is mm-hmm. why is it worth anything yeah and the reason is is that people still would buy something like that they think it's a neat card and it's something like that to have now is it neat enough to have a stack of them no yeah you know but we might be buying four of them or something like that in the buy list and that's because like that's an item that customer want to buy you know we do stagger some of our buys too a little bit. We might buy four of a card and then buy four of it later at a lower price, and that's just based on the amount we need to have in stock and yeah. then the amount that's overstocked. Your projection. Basically. You know, so, um, and that's as I said, that's a really good item, good example, because it's not a highly desired, highly, you know, moving card. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about uh, you know, lightning bolt. <laughs> yeah, so you, <laughs> it's very
1: fluid. So, your push and pull in, in terms of pricing and quantity on your virus is based more on your projections than the fact that something might be, uh, in, in the way people are phrasing it, you know, quote unquote, hard to move in their purview. Because let's say they don't see it moving in the US, but they see <coughs> the price rising.
2: Well, like, it's not necessarily projecting. A lot of my information is because we sell such a high volume of cards, is in house data. Yeah. Like, I will see that I have sold two ring of immortals in the past 30 days and that might be the only two that have sold on like ebay for example Mm -hmm. or there might be more sold on our site than in ebay and but i have that information i we have a a great way to to see that information on our site and because we sell to so many countries worldwide we see those different markets by these items which gives us the most possible information we can yeah you know i'm not going to say we're perfect and stuff, but I would say that you know we have a good idea of what we want to be doing with those types of items.
1: And, and a lot of what people don't see is that it's not just Troll and Toad, but most other major vendors are connected into multiple uh, products, or rather, selling platforms, not just their own website. So sure. they have you know their website, Amazon, TCG Player, eBay, you know, all these other places that they're able to sell items and get data back sure. and see where things are going, how things are moving, even sometimes how many people are just looking at the auction, or looking at the listing, and you can make your your changes based on that. It's not just like Ring of Immortals. Somebody doesn't who's listing on TCG doesn't understand why this card has a price. Sure, you know, kind of thing.
2: But, and it has an advantage because it's existed since the '90s. It's a it's a name that's been forever. So if you've bought Magic cards in the past, you might have bought from until 15 years ago. Yeah, and you come back later and you're looking for a card like Ring of Immortals because you have a memory of it. You might be one of the first places you check is a Troll and Toad. Yep. You know because it's been around for so long that you know they're the type of place to go to try and find that item, and it might increase the app for you to sell it over some of these other channels you're talking about. Where you know, as much as I, I, I think Amazon's one of the best selling platforms there is in the world because the most customers use it. I don't know how many cards from Legends and Arabians they really sell because who goes to Amazon to buy that? Yeah. you are going to Amazon to buy. Abyssin, Angel, Hope, you yeah. know, or, or, or uh, Karn, you know, yeah. or something like that. They're going to buy some of the cards that they're trying to fill in their decks with currently. Um, so I don't know how many that platform would sell, but having the most different platforms you can allows you more ability to see more customers. Okay. You know?
1: yeah. no, that makes sense. Uh, and uh, this is actually a, a couple of questions that I had in a row now regarding uh, niche formats. So uh, do You personally, (laughs) do you think uh, that alternative formats like 93, 94, uh, middle school or or pre-modern artificially inflate prices in the short term or the long term? Or do you think that these formats can actually raise the floor permanently?
2: Um, I think the formats can raise the floor, I think, in the short term, initial, whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, the push on prices is not from demand initially. A lot of times, it's going to be more from someone's going to try and make a move and buy a bunch of them, and you know, maybe they're just excited for a format. Yeah. And if a bunch of people get excited and start buying a card, let's use a good example for old school, Thunder Spirit. They start buying a card, well, that card is great in that format. Yeah. So, sometimes it's very highly justified, but sometimes there's people who buy cards that like uh, Tibidar's Crusade which also kind of saw a little bit of buzz at one point that card didn't really translate Goblins weren't like, I'm not saying it's not a deck, but it's not as prevalent of a card as say like a Thunder Spirit. Yes. So there is like some inflation that happens sometimes on items and the TCG market world might show it's more, it might be people trying to price it up, it might be people just seeing that the other ones are priced at like not everyone on TCG player is evil. You know, no. not everyone on eBay is evil. Um, <coughs> some people are just trying to use the best information they can to try and sell a card, um, and then some people are like, "You're just like, what are you trying to do? Why are you saying this card's not worth a thousand dollars? There's no way." Yeah. Um. So there is a variety there, and is the number one basis we use is sold. What it was sold for. Mm-hmm. You know, I think on TGC Player the the key term would be market price. Yes. Um, eBay, you can look at sold um and the rest of that information i'm gonna to have to use my back end data on our website to see the volume of items that we are actually selling through other platforms and stuff like that to know uh how good an item is for selling but i think those formats allow for cards the more times you have a, a, a person's need to rise to need to need a card to want a card it's better for the game because it gives them a variety of different ways from the play and enjoy the game yeah so the more times that they're going to play in a format where a card that, say, like, Resurrection or something like that, and that card's not really worth anything, but Resurrection is better that the more times it validates owning that card. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. So I think it's, it does raise the floor some, but maybe not in a way that's outrageous. And one of the things about Magic the Gathering that's sometimes forgotten is that Magic in general, and some people will go crazy about this, is a cheap game. When you compare where cards were... Twenty years ago, in terms of value, when they came out, and then they evolved over time. While we do can go look at black lotus, look at, this. Look at the cards. We know the cards that are huge that have jumped up, but there are still rares out there that are a dollar. Yeah, there's still rares out there that are fifty cents. You can't buy a candy bar in a store for fifty cents. You can't buy a twenty ounce soda in a store yeah. for fifty cents. So like, there's a part where the game is still cheap. I understand. <clears throat> when you're buying a lot of cards, it doesn't seem cheap, but there's a point where there's still like the, the availability of, of a unique item yeah. is cheap when you compare it to, say, a grocery store, mm-hmm. where, you know, the certain specified items would be, maybe it used to be 9 cents and now they're $3. You know, there's a there's a, just an overall rise and in an economy thing or whatever. Like that. Yeah. I'm no expert when it comes to that field either, but there is a part where things naturally rise. And when there's demand and want for something, like with these with these formats, um, it's going to naturally rise. Yeah. So when a card suddenly becomes, you know, like Rock of Courage is a, is a revised card, which is now a couple bucks, and Rock Hydra is a couple bucks, and people are like, Rock Hydra? That was garbage. But in 1993, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, Rock Hydra was a card that people would put in their deck and people hated playing against that card because it so good. Yeah. So when they make a format where that card can be reasonably good again, it's not a shock when it's worth three dollars. We're talking three dollars, you know. It's the bag of your favorite potato chips at the quick stop. Yeah. You know, like, and, and yes, I, because the perspective and the history, seeing it being a 50 cent card in the past, you're like in shock and awe of whatever it is. You know, 15, 20 years ago is worth nothing. Um, but it's still relatively a cheap item, and I think the fact that that floor rises a little bit on those items, you're still talking about. a Item that's twenty to twenty five years old. Yeah, you know that's that's crazy. That's what I think people forget think about. Think about
1: toys that are twenty five years yeah. old in the package too. Oh, we've mentioned this before, and yeah. and uh, things we were we collected outside of Magic, and I I brought up that I've been collecting uh, what they call ten back Ninja Turtles. The first run in nineteen eighty eight, there are ten characters on the back. The original four turtles: April, Splinter, Foot Soldier, Shredder, Rocksteady, Bebop. It's ten. Okay, right and. So- uh, the first time I went, I wanted to buy them, when we were at Anime Expo the first year I went, they were about $25 per turtle. By the time I got around to buying them, they were about $40 per turtle. Yeah. Now, two to three years later, you're looking at eighty to a hundred dollars for for a turtle. And in
2: 1988, how much was that item? Uh, Six bucks? Five bucks?
1: I some of some of them have stickers, and if I remember correctly, we're talking like anywhere from three to five dollars because you could get them at drugstores like sure. Magic Cards. You can get them at Toys R Us like yeah. Magic Cards, KB Toys like Magic Cards, and they're all within the same, you know, plus or minus.
2: Yeah. So it's crazy when you think about these items. Like these floors have gone up on some of these older items where they found formats. Sometimes people forget about age. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> we, we talk about things like, you know, let's just think, for example, like an Eldritch Moon. Eldritch Moon, for most people in the magic world have been around for a while, that's pretty recent. Yeah. But there's many years now that we're past Eldritch Moon. Yeah, we're like four years past that set. Yeah, and years. it's crazy when you start thinking it's four years. That's someone's college education. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: yeah and a lot of times people forget about the nostalgia factor with this stuff too sure you know rock Hydra was a great threat back then and it's a great threat now in this nostalgic format it's a and, living fireball man. yeah and, <laughs> and nostalgia is a very powerful motivator and i was joking with somebody today i was like nostalgia is worth infinite like we were looking at some of the base set pokemon cards we have where we were just kind of you know yeah. shooting the shit nostalgia is worth infinite that multiplier is infinite people will yeah. always pay for the nostalgia value and that gets tacked on to this great hobby of ours. You know?
2: And, There's a point, it'll happen in the future, and it's hard for people to accept it. But there will be a point, someday in the future, in our lifetimes, when a card like Taiga, from Revise, is going to be $1,000. It's going to happen. I know it's hard to fathom that right now. I'm not saying run out and buy all the Tigers in the world, because I don't know if that time's going to be two months from now. Or. But, it you know, might 20 be years. 15, 20 years yeah. from now. It might be 40 years from now. Maybe that's a little long to think in the future, but it could be sooner than that because things could mature and stuff like that. The more and more players that Magic brings in the game by using other platforms, the more and more people come interested into it by seeing a Black Lotus sell for more than $100,000 uh, for a greater one, the more people come into the game from outside and join it, and the more people who, who join it because they grow into it. Yep is going to allow more people to want older cards. Mm-hmm. And the inevitability of it is no matter how many they made of those cards back then, some are destroyed, some are lost.
1: Every year, too. And
2: more and more of these items are going to be wanted, and it just creates more and more yeah. value. And economy will go up. I said, eventually items that were you know, $0.30, cents, $0.20, cents, you know, $0.10 cents back in the day, they, they'll naturally rise because Magic's still a game that's wanted, and it's a universe that has a storyline that's cool. Yeah. You know? If tomorrow they told us that Magic Gallery no longer had any tournament support at all. I don't think Magic dies.
1: No. It goes back to
2: being what it once was.
1: You you it look still at these, has
2: a value to the person who's partaking in the in the game.
1: And the groups, you look at these are like guerrilla movements like Popper was originally. Yeah. What like before it hit before it had rules on Moto, people were playing Popper in the free to play rooms. Yeah. They just made the format themselves. And the other thing that that we like to bring up every now and again, either in, in Discord or the podcast, I can ne- never remember where we mention it. Is every year more people make begin making a real income, and yep. that means those people people now have purchasing power in these uh, for these older sure. cards in these in these other formats that helps raise that floor. They might
2: have played the game eight or ten years ago at ten years old the card shop. Now they're out of college and they have a career. They're they're not even, maybe not in college. Maybe they've spent five six years working at a place and they have a it's a nice, stable job, and they have the ability to purchase an item and put money into the industry. And the more and more that money goes into the industry, the more and more support the card's having a relative value. Yeah. value would I mean. so. be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, And, like, for me, like, I, when I first started playing, you know, with you back in 2003, we started playing Standard, and, like, that extended period of time was one of my favorite Formats ever, like those, those three extended. Me too. Yeah. like That's for personal accords, though. <laughs> look, look, one of us might have made the Pro Tour multiple times, all right? And might have missed one.
2: But... I played Mono Green Stompy, which it's like I was a five year old kid playing Magic at Turns while they're playing all these crazy combo decks. You're playing Arm was... and Pump? I'm playing like Rogue Elf and a 3 3 for one that kills your lands. And I'm playing it and kicking butts. It was yeah. awesome. <laughs> so, middle school
1: for me just is that nostalgia factor that brings me back to like, okay, I can like, I I have at the end of this anime Boston trip a 74 of 75 foil astral slide list. I have my Aluren deck put together. I have the Goblin deck I used to play yep. back then. Because I have a real income and thus agency in this format. And I had the ability to buy back in at a rate I was never capable yep. of and play a format that I just adore to pieces. Even
2: if you don't play it, there's still a, a feeling of you know you just like having the thing you used to have yeah. no matter what it is if it's the if it's a certain time frame you like the game you like the cards you just like the way they look whether or not you have use for them or not you know you just you look at them you're like man hellfire great. some you dude asks us for
1: hellfire we usually keep a hellfire with us in yeah. the case and the first time i saw it i asked Jeremy, why do we have a Hellfire in the case? It's like, because it looks cool. Somebody yeah. will buy it because it looks cool, not That's, because of it's what it does. a great piece of art. And today we had somebody ask, like, yo, you guys got this card from Legends. It's black. It does this thing. I'm like, Hellfire? There's like, yeah, Hellfire. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, we do not for a once. Hammer of
2: Bogart is one of those cards where oh, I matured thing. with the game back then, and that was a very powerful, very good card in its time frame. And it's something that to this day, I still have my original playset of them. From I Mirage. would never get rid of them. It's worth forty-nine cents, thirty-five. It's worth nothing. Worth literally nothing. But to me, it's amazing. Yeah, that card was always the card. It's always yeah. going to be the card. And maybe I don't even play. It. I build commander decks. I don't even use Hammer Booger. That's why I haven't won. But <laughs> um, I don't generally use that card. But it's an amazing card to me because of that time frame in my life. Yeah. Some of these cards, like Thawing Glaciers like Lord of uh like Stormbind, which the age of the game and the things involved in magic have way surpassed. I mean, Stormbind, compared to like this new card they're making, Living Twister, Living Twister is ten times better. Oh, yeah. But, I will always remember Stormbind for what it was. I thought it was cool art back then, it was a very unique card, and it was a time when I was clicking magic in my head and, and making decks and creating ideas, and that part is what you see from your nostalgia. Yeah. That mental process you went through then, of feeling your way through something and understanding it, and finding like these these things that you enjoyed as part of the game.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, it it's hard to talk about if if you don't have and understand really to and kind of click with if, if you haven't experienced this kind of uh, nostalgia. Like m- my wife plays the game, and for her it's like Theros Khan's era, mm-hmm. where she was just able to play like the Mono Red deck and the and Mono Black. Uh, Devotion, and when she had the chance to play Mono Black Devotion at um, one of the stores by us, they're running a league, and your deck could cost no more than twenty five dollars. That deck, aside from the Urborgs, like she was able to just jam the full seventy five minus the Urborgs. so seventy one <laughs> of seventy five at that event. She could not be happier. I think she lost everything. Like somebody yeah. played Zubara Combo and oh, comboed her out, and like she, it didn't matter. She was playing Mono Black Devotion, like that was it. Just loved it to pieces. But oh, if you, I
2: played, I played that, I played some Popper. Somewhat, where A local store did some of it, and I was like, well, this is interesting. I didn't jump at it at first, because I played type of peasant-type magic in the past. Yeah, but that's what the uncommon is. I didn't love it. Yeah, but I didn't love it, but for some reason I was like, it's all common stuff. I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to play it, I I said how much I like Stompy. I'm going to play Stompy. And I'm playing cards like Briar Shield, which a lot of people do not know what this card is. And I put it out, you know, it gives your creature plus almost once and one-manic enchantment, and you can sacrifice it. Weatherly? Yeah, it is. Okay, I know. You can yeah. sacrifice the other creature plus three plus three into an the turns. So it's like a giant growth that has a living bonus on the creature yeah. for plus one that turns into it. Why well, I'm playing that in my deck and it's confusing people is why I'm playing like these cards that aren't in when they look online and they see these deck lists for mono green, stompy, and popper, I'm buying some cards that are not typical. That I'm like this is a good card. Yeah. And I'm kicking butt with it and, and I did well. I played in like a couple of popper events and you know even if I didn't win them I, I love playing the deck because I love that deck. Yeah. You know, when I play against the deck and the deck is good, and I'm like, you know, it's hard for me to beat that deck. But I don't care because I'm playing the stuff I love. Yeah. And I remember from 20 years ago, I mean, the success I had with it and how fun it was. Nostalgia, you know?
1: man. It's a powerful mode. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it really yes. is. Um, and Moving away from uh, niche formats to a format that doesn't exist yet, looking forward, uh, we had a question about uh, modern horizons and how... Uh, Troll is kind of Bracing for impact Where mm-hmm. we know There will be Two brand new cards To the game Brought in uh, We know there's a Box topper That is a reprint uh, for A card that exists Already just outside Modern And then we have A whole new Modern format To look forward sure. to Coming after Outside of London
2: Modern got kind of You know Two years ago Three years ago Modern was the best Oh yeah Twelve Fifteen Twenty decks It didn't matter What you wanted to play It was good Modern got a little stale, I and mean, it kind of became this a series of certain decks that were the best decks. And uh, a lot of people lost interest when they started to play the same deck over and over again. Mm-hmm. They go to their local FNM and they play mono red, mono red, tron, tron, tron. And they just don't want to play Magic anymore. Yep. Um, and I'm not saying those are the only decks people play. I'm just using examples. Y- yeah. You know, uh, but whatever it is, and it, beca- it lost a little bit of lust. And now people still like modern. But Modern Horizons is like, we're gonna open something up. And it allows for some powerful cards, mm-hmm. allows for some interesting cards, and a whole new world of interaction. Because before, whenever we have it, we have to build modern in with standard sets. Yes. So we have like pieces that make sense in a modern deck. Like light up the stage, the skewer of the critics for red cards. But it's not like every standard set, like War of the Spark, while there will be some cards that definitely are players for something like Modern. Is it a set full? This set is trying to attempt to be a set full. Not necessarily and 100% heaters, but No, of so. course not. It's like any set. But if, yeah. you, if you have 50, 40, 30, 40, 50 cards that make huge impacts, yeah. that are accessories to decks that maybe make something better, different ideas that don't get played enough, You know, like we don't know the type of cards we're going to get. You know, Maybe the Ad nauseum deck becomes better. Maybe, you know, It yeah, opens yeah. up this window for these decks that we know exist, and maybe they could be good again. Maybe the other decks will have something that hosts them to make them not whatever, and it won't be as repetitious. And that was made Modern great to begin with, because there's a format full of all these different decks we'd love to see. You could go to a tournament and play eight rounds and not play the same deck. And what made it a little rougher for people to whatever is that it became whatever. So people kind of went back, and Standard became much better during this time. Oh yeah. So people kind of went to that or other formats. People, a lot of people still play modern. A lot of people still play modern decks. Oh yeah. It's not. It's not like it's hurting. It's just modern rises is a fresh coat of paint that we're putting onto something (laughs) that could be could be very impactful. Um, and the price point is you know not going to be. It's not a master's level price. No. No. It's like the in between. Yeah. And it's exciting because it's going to open cards up from legacy that could be reprinted that you know they, that we didn't know if they could they could be used before mm-hmm. you know um, <laughs> so you know I start thinking about these different cards you know what about this card what about this card you know if they're the new the new guy who's like a cabal therapy what do they make cabal therapy you know may, yeah, yeah, we, don't, we don't really know yeah. and it's that factor and yes there will be some hype and buzz on some cards the moment they say hey we're printing this That might cause some people to go crazy. You know? We're reprinting (laughs) Oubliette. And you you laugh. But if they print that card back as a rare, some people might have that might that's gonna change the market. Oh yeah. Like the Radiant Knights one. You know? We don't actually know what they could do, but generally they they don't make cards in a way that can do that. You know? What if they make sinkhole? Could you imagine a two mana land destruction spell? Like it's not a, it's not something we could fathom. Yeah, in A yeah. standard set, a standard release. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it just opens up the fantasy, the theory of what something could be. I don't I have no idea what those items might be, but it's just interesting to know that you know the, the doors open and they can make just new cards that do all kinds of stuff. And we don't know. Yeah. It's it's very fresh.
1: But like so, before Modern uh, Horizons was announced, like I actually advocated when it when it comes to like non-Fetchland, non-Shockland based modern stuff, things that and cards that don't see Legacy, Vintage, or EDH play kind of divesting from your more than four of copy and either moving back into those cards that see other Eternal format play uh, Lily, Lily Vale, Jace Mind Sculptor, like I said, uh, Fetchlands Thought Seizes, etc. because they'll, they'll continue to see play elsewhere You know, while I while was looking at you know, divesting from Modern and basically pulling back from that market. It, are you guys kind of opening it up a little more and saying like, "We"? Well, should be- our
2: site sells everything. We sell. It doesn't matter if there even is a format. World Championship cards. Yep. Basic lands from World Championship decks. We sell, them. and they actually sell. It's crazy some of the stuff we see selling our site, and that just tells you that across the world, there's all kinds of cards that are wanted. So. We don't specifically target anything for Modern Horizons, but we're definitely not trying to not purchase items that would be good for something like that because yeah. we want people to be able to purchase items off our site. So, I guess the, the, a, a
1: good question then instead would be let's say something specific. Like, let's say actually, you know, let's look at the Zendikar fetch lands, the MM2 fetch lands, knowing that Modern Horizons is going to be coming down the pipe and people are still looking for these fetch lands. Those are, to me, would seem like the kind of thing where you could say, Okay, people aren't always gonna buy these things, so let's just keep keep the doors open and sure. and up the quantity we want to buy. Sure. Is that
2: well that's an item I always want to buy a bunch of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but I'm but I mean but even yeah, more ratchet no, up. There's definitely no fear. Like I can understand some people being like, I just wanna have twelve of each cons fetch land right now because you know, if you know windswept tea's what, 12, 14 yeah. bucks. It's maybe fifteen dollars. Like uh, having a couple extra of them isn't like necessarily a bad thing because you might have a couple of decks you want to build or something, yeah. and I don't think that's a completely uncommon thing. If everyone starts doing that, it could cause the price to rise, but that's not an intentional move. That's an unintentional market just growth. Yeah. So uh, I think that you could see some residual things from that. We, you know, once again, our, our analysis is telling us like just from the excitement from it, some of those items are already selling more. Yep. So we're trying to buy more. Yeah. And it's it's. It walks itself there for us. Yeah. You know, the items are naturally selling. They start selling more and more just because they might be something like that. People just want to make sure they have it because they like the cards or something like that. Or, or they just, you know, they just want to make sure. Yeah,
1: we know we're not getting Jace the Mind Sculptor. We know we're not getting the Zendikar Fetchlands in the set. But those so are wh-
2: great cards to have anyway.
1: Correct. But what happens in the general public is the people who don't own them and think, well, they're not going to be reprinted sure. yet again. Let me buy in now are removing well, them let's from Let's say the someone who was thinking about
2: getting the modern or someone building build a modern deck. You see that new black creature they're making? Yeah. And there's no way you can't read that and be like, if you don't have thought Seasons yet and you want to play a black deck, you need thought Seasons. Yeah. Because turn one Seasons, get this card. Turn two, play that guy, sacrifice and get two of another card. Just the allure of how good that moment feels. Yeah. Is very powerful, and it's not like you're buying a bad card, boxees. No, no. <laughs> you're no. buying a great card.
1: Yeah. So you're letting the market just kind of, like you said, walk itself there for sure. you. You're not worried about ratcheting up, okay, whatever we're buying in Scalding Tarns, let's up that number by, let's say, 1.1x, you sure. know, let's buy some extra. You're just like, letting even you know, when, a, when a card is, it.
2: like, I made a good example of, like, Ad Nauseam, which is not a deck anyone's going to generally come to as their first thought of in modern, but like, uh, you know, Frexian Unlike is a card, but even when that deck's not a hot ticket, I still sell, sell some French helmets. I, I, I keep it's it, still a card. But I it keep it built. I have. But I'm just saying, like, yeah. it's not the when you t- try to think of top five modern deck.
1: It is not. It's
2: not a top five modern deck, but it's still those items will still sell because someone out there is looking. At the it's price. a top five modern deck if you really
1: want to teach somebody how to use a stack and then blow their mind when you well, put sure. counters on a friggin' <laughs> instant. <Technicality>, yeah. <laughs> what does lightning storm do? Kill you? That's all you need to know. <laughs>
2: all
1: right. All right. The the rest of these questions don't kind of line up in like easy easily digestible packets, so we're just kind of going to skip around from okay. topic to topic. Um, so we had a, a question of, about bulk trading efforts. Is uh, is bulk trading worth it even on a large scale? And what I, I didn't get from this person and couldn't track down because these were anonymous submissions was whether they mean uh, bulk bulk like bulk commons, bulk uncommons, bulk rares, and getting like that bulk value and just you know going around buying local bulk from people to move to a vendor at a Grand Prix or l- large quantity trading. Oh, You know, like somebody who's just going to say, all right, here's my binder. I'm going to go trade it for like a bunch of duels and sure. chill. Sure. Like uh, that first model. What's well, so
2: the perception of what is bulk within yeah. the eyes of the beholder. Some people, if it's a card under $2 and they don't care about it, it's bulk. Yeah. But you can walk up to a vendor and they may pay you a quarter 50 cents for these random cards you don't care about. It's not bulk. You're gonna get something cool out of it. Yeah, but it's but to you it was bulk because it meant nothing. You well, know? Or, you know, or there's this the the massive quantity of yeah. car that you're talking about. Um, I don't necessarily know but what was the question exactly again. So crazy, again? it because it's it, well we'll break it down because it is
1: an awkward piece because like like we talk, we both talked about it, you got to define bulk. So let's look at the first instance. You know, somebody, uh, let's say me. You know, because nobody knows what to do with their bulk in Vermont. I buy all the bulk I can and literal sure. literal bulk, I go through and I pick it. So by the end of the day, I have what I can bring to a Grand Prix and give to a vendor as bulk commons, uncommons, rares, mythics, foils, and get a bulk price. Now, that used to be something that somebody could do when bulk rares were worth 10 cents across the board, regardless to who was there. But do you think it is worth the time now for somebody to purposely look for in their area bulk like that to bring to a Grand Prix or to a vendor and, and sell and that's... I,
2: I don't know necessarily because I haven't been doing as many Grand prix. if there's as many vendors as used to be who'd want something like that I don't really know, I think it's easier to get magic bulk in quantity uh, a lot of times more than it used to be, Yeah. but that doesn't mean that that won't change in the future that's the beauty of bulk is that you can take a giant stack of bulk you can pick it, you put it in the corner you forget about it Three years later, to go through it, guarantee you're going to find some stuff. Yeah. Because that's the beauty of magic. And um, you'll, you'll see, like, so, like, there's a, there's a maturation to anything like that. I don't know if as many vendors or whatever, some people used to try and build every line. Things have kind of changed uh, in terms of whatever the needs of book. I don't necessarily know if the vendors that you're going to find at the Grand Prix need the book. Yeah. Um, the more and more foreign vendors you see go to event, and I know there is definitely more. Vendors from other countries who come over now—they're not going to probably buy bulk because they got to fly back. They're going to be, you know, bringing their bulk back with them to uh, Australia or to uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I would, it's going to cost them a pretty. Yeah, I would, So it's pretty hard for them. To I to would buy never it. go to
1: Galactus. Guys who <laughs> actively speak Italian at the booth when no, when people are at the booth. <laughs> I'm not going to bring them a five row of yeah. like comes Like here you go, guys. Yeah. But like, that model was existed previously not the fire vendors but the you know for sure when when bulk had a, a price across the board everybody kind of accepted and so it was kind of worthwhile when you include your the human capital in it because the it's ROI true. was always 10 cents on a rare and almost every vendor drove there so they're going to take your bulk you're yeah. going to get your money back and whatever. The model changes as time evolves as more product is made by uh by, by requested to be made by a then printed and sent out, whatever. So we have just a huge influx of cards overall. Bulk prices go down, and is it worthwhile for people to spend their time to pick something and bring true chaff to a Grand Prix a couple of weeks later?
2: I mean, the real question is, if you're picking through all the stuff, maybe the real thing you're trying to sell is actually the cards you pick. It picks. And... I can't tell you how good that'll be because I don't know the book you're going to be able to find. Exactly, yeah. That's an unknown. But it might be very good for you. I don't know. You might go through a bunch of books and find a bunch of faithful loonies that someone didn't care about. I don't know. You know? Or you might not find anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and... And, and it, it's a good point because it is very variable, and it really comes down to, you know, what, like you said, what do you think you're going to find? And then you have to remember to factor in the human capital. Your labor is always worth something. Sure. And generally speaking, it's probably going to be worth more than you know, 5 to $6 an hour, there, which might be what you have. Out, out There are some people out
2: there who literally, I, I don't know how many there is out there in total now, but there are some people who literally go out and buy bulk to resell bulk. They never even look at the cards. They're not putting any labor into it their whole business is do that. <laughs> there are less of those people out there than there was in the past. Yeah. Um, but they do exist. So, And they're not, they're doing fractions of a cent. You know, they're buying this bulk from you for $3.50 and signing to the next guy for $3.60 and you're like, what are you doing? But they're doing so many units over and over again that that's they, what they're trying to make money. They grind that it that right, way, yeah. And it, sometimes it's, it's worth letting the person make do all that work to make that money, you know, and you might, well, that guy's getting rich off it, they're doing a lot of travel and work to do this stuff, and yes, it's beneficial for them, but, you know, it it comes down to what you want to spend your time doing. You know, they're trying to make it the most efficient uh, method as possible for them, it may not be something that's efficient for you, and they're not picking it. If you're picking it, then they're, really, you're trying to put a value into the items you pulled out of your yeah. not necessarily the bulk you've picked to sell as just bulk junk, the you know? Okay, so that makes sense then, more so. The chafe is to get you some return on your money. Yeah. You're trying to make your money off of the picks.
1: Yeah, if that's what you choose to do using that method. If it's just to reroute the bulk, then you have to readjust your model. Sure. Uh, going back to the question and looking at the other method, you know, uh, trades in terms of volume. And so at this point, it seems like we're really talking about what somebody would refer to as a binder grinder or a, a backpack vendor, mm-hmm. which is a little harder to do now at Grand Prix with CFB kind of policing things. Well,
2: you got to remember there was a point in time before when there was backpack vendors and stuff like that who existed before, and their purpose was never to try and trade someone for value. And what happened is we entered a realm where was a lot of people out there who were going to events to try and trade for value so they wanted to give you $50 for what they envisioned as $55 or $70 or whatever the, the margin is they're using for your cards they would tell you up front they would use different information from different sites they find creative ways they weren't some were some were shady most weren't
0: yeah
2: <laughs> they're trying to live the dream just like anyone else you know but before that there was a time when people would just go and trade and the whole point was you trade so that you can go bring it to a different market of people, a different region, and trade those cards that were that are worth more to someone else or more wanted. Hey, exactly. You know, if I got a stack of, um, I want to Think of a random card. Mesmeric crown. How about that? Not I'm the gonna mesmeric. S- I thought you were going to go with. No, okay. I was going to say I was thinking over but yeah, no, no, yeah, we're yeah. going to go <laughs> we're going to go something real deep. Um, but that might be something that you know might be worth fifty cents or like that. But maybe there's people in your area who want it. You're going to go trade for it. Doesn't mean you can't go an event and trade flat up. I have done plenty of trading myself, where I go to an event like a Star City Open, and I just want to trade, and I just want to trade fair. Yeah. And the person asks me, like, "What do you want to use? TCG player, Star City, Troll and Toad?" It's like, "What? What's your basis for pricing?" And I'm like, "As long as it's the same thing for each of us." On both ends. Yeah. I don't of care. Here, I'm trading cards I don't need. I'm trading for cards I'm looking for. Yeah. That's actually the essence of trading itself. And people would love trading weeks. because I have some, I had some dual lands and sometimes some power because they're like, I can get this card from you for these other cards, I'm like, "Yes," because I don't need those cards. I need these other things I'm picking up. Yeah. And I was looking for a fair trade. So it blows people's mind. But then I come back to my area where everyone needed, you know, the Scalding Tarns or the Marsh Flats I picked up for those dual lands and I can trade with people who need them to help them out. Yeah. There's a value in that and maybe I made some profit along the way. I don't necessarily was necessarily always doing it to try and make a ton of profit. You know, sometimes I would have i c I'd buy a collection, this is when I was on my own, and have a bunch of foreign cards that I couldn't cash out. But I'd go to an event and trade a foreign card. If you love playing cards and you have scalding time and you see a guy who wants to trade you a Japanese scalding Tarn at the same price, well yeah, yeah you, you need a scalding Tarn, you want that. Yeah. But then I'm trading you a card that I wasn't able to sell. And I might get something I can sell. That's kind of me gaining profit, but I'm not trying to do it at trying to get you for value. And being very fair you yeah. know and so that's beneficial to each person equally mm-hmm. and there's less of that that but it definitely happens to some extent that used to be a thing that happened a lot more it just that became a a, a of a rage even yeah. uh, of people who wanted to uh pick up items for for profit yeah trade for profit it started off with one of my fine friends John Medina and the pack for power build yourself up find the profit levels you can and the idea was incredibly smart but what happened is people turned it into instead of trying to one time achieve something by working really really hard because the pack for power stretch goal is hard work yeah you' the power you end on the end is more the time you invested into the trading yeah but people turned it into I'm gonna make myself a bunch of money I'm gonna make myself you know, this much money on the weekend, and it became their job. Yeah, but people saw this as a career, and they were driving around to Grand prix. And I'm not saying, you know, that it was necessarily bad, but it was kind of bad, because if you're a random guy who goes to a tournament once every, once every six months, and you just want to go trade on the floor, and the guy next first guy sit down and was like, I need to make 20% of my trades. Okay? You go to the next thing, and say, like, I need to make 15% of your trades. You're like, what is going on here? Yeah. I don't want anything to do with these people, because... They would sometimes the person who sits down and does that would rather go to the vendor because it feels less shady because from the vendor you know what to expect when you sit down. Yeah, and you know they're going to have what you want. Yeah, you know they have a showcase full of one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars worth of cards, and they've already got the cards you want. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, so there's an the intrinsic value there sometimes that to, to reliability and that that feeling before when there's the value trading going on it was like people felt like some some people get really angry at it. Yeah. And that's why they, a lot of those places like Channel Fireball and Star, so you stopped allowing people to do it because when people don't want to go to your event because they felt like they were treated unfairly, trading on the floor, then they don't ever come play at their event again. Well, the event then doesn't get to happen. And isn't the whole point of the event is to, for people to play Magic? Play Magic, yeah. So, let's keep people coming in the stores. I don't think they necessarily really are trying to, to hurt some people but it felt that first, I think, like the some of the the magic guy the community felt alienated. And some of the guys who were doing some of this trading for value weren't necessarily guys who were really, they just kinda did because there was 25, 30, 50 other people doing it. And they were smart enough guys like, well, this is uh, something I can do, I can do it. Yeah, I can do it, yeah. You know? And uh, so they kinda got caught up in the whirlwind of whatever and you know, some of them had some, I know some people got banned from events and stuff like yeah. that and things like that. And you know, in, in the end, the, the original route was people just trying to trade for someone to get something that's better for them to trade a certain area, so I don't think you always necessarily need to have a value for value trade. Yes, it is harder if you're trying to treat it as a business, but maybe your focus on your business should be getting the items for your customers that they that you need and trading the items you don't need to get those items because you're just supplying the customer with better business and you're creating your business by selling that item or trading that item to that guy back home. It's right for here you. you don't even have to make a profit to do it. You know? Yeah. Like- just being there for your clients when you customers. trade an item you can't sell instead of selling it to a vendor uh you trade an item you can't sell for something you can trade to someone else to help out your friend back home yeah there's a moral value there and a positive value in your pocket too. yeah
1: it works out well um uh, again skipping through uh Graded cards. Uh, we did uh, three episodes about this uh, with our friend Larry, who talked infinitely and will talk at you infinitely about graded coins and <laughs> and uh, the maturity of that market compared to the immaturity of the magic market. Um, but do you have any general advice for dealing with graded cards? Not necessarily like trying to get into the market and, just be, and you know be somebody who owns graded cards. Just if somebody's like, I have this this graded card, I want to get out of it. You know, is it? Do you think that's that's something that your average person, like, doing magic finance on the side, could handle, or sure. is the the market too niche or too it, immature?
2: A lot of the a lot of that type of thing is the eye of the beholder. You know, you talked about the coins thing. I, I used to do sports cards a long time ago before Match the Gathering dealing, and I still do some sports card stuff a little bit now with the business I'm involved with, but. There was also pricing back then, mm-hmm. so there was like a market value. Yeah. One of the things you don't know is how much a card is actually worth. And the bet, the really good stuff, the nine point fives of these really old school cards that are great, or even some random cards that are newer that are great, a ten or something like that, or something. The whole point of of getting something like that is to invest for it to rise. Yeah. And you're not wrong when you get something that's at great and an exceptional condition, you know, because. It's an investment that is a smart investment. You're doing something that's significant. But then you're trying to get rid of it. There's no, you know, you have a, a, a BGS9, you know, uh, Onslaught, Blue to Delta. There may not be an established market for something like that. So to be able to sell it and how to sell it and to who to sell it, it's tougher. Because that item is no longer a play item by, by a random person. Mm-hmm. So it's a tough, tough spot to be in. Though I do think getting the right types of cards that can rise are a good investment. I think it's something more and more where I pay attention to it. I mean, I've talked about it at, at Troll and Toad about should we be doing more with graded cards, you know? Not that I'm afraid to buy them when someone comes up to me and tries to sell them to me, but, you know, but it's 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 almost like a whole other job, a whole yeah. other department. Yeah. Because yeah, so there's so world. much into it that you'd have to try and figure out, and it's kind of like... Uh, guessing yep and i don't necessarily know if you'd be right you know like yes a mox jet 9.5 and eight and nine that's a lot easier to do because we see a lot of those on ebay yeah but yeah. you want to tell me how much you're you said astral slide yeah a bgs 10 foil astral slide from Scourges. and i'll tell you you don't probably i mean maybe there's one listed but uh, you don't actually know what it's worth and i don't know what it's worth and none of us are gonna know those sorts. Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> no. So. Be, you're, you're forging ahead in the, in the market because it's immature. Mm-hmm. We, all the cards that exist currently in Magic are not graded. They're yeah. at a, at eight, and eight five, and nine, and nine five, and ten. We, we don't have that market
2: in front of us. Well, we, we've seen some things on eBay recently sell. Each month, the uh, company sell uh, consignment company sells uh, um, uh, different Magic items. And we've seen some of these big black things that cause buzz for the industry and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. To try and but bring But you see eyes them also sell money. some really weird items, a BGS nine point five foil Akina Temple, like what? what? Yeah. And I'm like, and it goes for like way more than a normal one would go for. And I'm like, but there's nothing I can say that makes it wrong. But I'm also wondering why that, why does happen? Why is this, why is this card or something? Why is also- enter the infinite foil BGS 9.5 selling for as much as it is? It blows my mind somewhat, but also, eh, if someone loves that card, you know, sure, it's a centerpiece. Yeah. Like, I it, there's twofold to it, but it, it it's really tough markets to say you know whatever without having the items that have all the sales and stuff like that attached to it. And there's a difference between PSA and VGS. Yep, that was going to I was going to mention. There's something. I'll now tell, tell you this much: the further you go into other collectibles, the more you will find that PSA PSA is generally the standard. BGS can be for certain types of items in those types of games. Mm-hmm. Or product lines, you know what I'm saying? Like sports cards, yeah, like yeah, points, yeah. stuff like that. I actually not the best grading company for points. But, but each each line usually has whatever. And uh, you know, Pokemon, it's all about PSA. It's all about PSA. BGS is whatever. Now the reason why we like BGS in the magic world is the point of having these highly graded cards is the specifics to it that make it that great. Yeah. And BGS is the most fine point of those things. So yes, when searching for perfection, it is the best. And in those other games, or the other product lines, it is the best. With really old sports cards, BGS doesn't even do old sports cards like stuff in the 50s, That's 30s. interesting. Yep, they just, they stay where they're at. Well, they it never did it in the past, it's a newer company. PSA's been around Forever, ever, ever. Yeah, it's also still humans doing it, so you have to have somebody knowledgeable enough
1: story. to train. Yeah.
2: So you know they have some older cards that they've graded, but they're not really. That's not their their thing. Okay. So, but you know, when you want the finest points, like of a newer card, a BGS ten is going to be better than a PSA ten usually because it's it's flawless. Yep. But it's you know once again we're talking about hypotheticals in a market. It's tough to gauge something. That's yeah. It's in the graded world for Magic. I think it's cool. It's exciting. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if you should go spend a bunch of money on it unless it's like alpha rares, but you should. it's the same thing as saying you should buy an alpha rare and upgrade it. That's in good shape because that's a good item too.
1: Yeah, it's also, but this is one of those things where if you're going to try and dive into it, you probably shouldn't just tentative, tentatively move into it. You should move into it and kind of own your existence in that space. You should want to work in that space focus in that space learn and grow in that space sure. make your connections in that space and move into being an expert in that space because that's what's going to pay dividends when it comes to working in graded cards sure. not just buying here and moving there i mean one
2: of the most knowledgeable people out there is definitely a guy named jim who has been around for a while I, some people know him and connect with me because we've done some videos together and stuff like that sure. online but jim is a is a cartoon character as a real life person he's funny he says a lot of great stories but he's also been running this company called Graded Power for a while. And guess what? For the past five, seven years, he's been selling and buying graded cards. So there's very few people out there who have as much knowledge about the market for him yeah. than he does. And you might be like, Well, what does he know? He's this guy, he's like forgotten in time like that. I mean, he lives in Breeza on a daily basis and most of us are not doing anything to do with graded cards. So he is definitely an expert in that line. Yeah, and he
1: just created a product line so he can better display not graded cards in particular, but old-ass sealed product. Yeah. Like, he definitely operates in a space that a lot of people do well, not. Well, he's smart. He's and smart. Like, he, he, basically an industry expert in the fields he he, he works in.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, move on. He, plus, plus, he likes
2: to live in the world of nostalgia a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Protecting uh, cool things. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it's in particular, like, the sealed cases he, he had built, the acrylic, or for, like, alpha through... For revised sized uh, starters and sealed decks yeah. like that's nostalgia to yep. To a T. Um, uh, moving on, we have a, a question about sealed uh, booster boxes, and I, I like this question because it's not as open ended as I thought it was originally. It's a little more narrow. And the question is, how do you value groups of older sealed older sealed booster boxes relative to the going rate on the market when it comes to market up? Sorry, making uh, purchasing offers. So, you know, for instance, uh, Zendikar boxes are still floating around, OG Zendikar, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what does it look like or how do you feel about making offers on something like that compared to the market? Is that something that you want to make an offer on at a standard rate you know, based on, on the data that you have because you, you can put it in the system and you know it'll flip in time or is it something you want to offer a little more highly on because you know you, they don't come in stock it off on the site, sure. you could probably raise the price, still flip both it. Both those
2: things you're saying are true. It takes longer to sell some of Some of it doesn't. But it is an item that's harder to stock yeah. consistently. And another thing that's fearful is if you pay a really high percentage on stuff, the people who do have it, and there are people out there who have it, will find you, and suddenly you're faced with buying, you know, six hundred forty thousand dollars worth of silk product. It's a lot. You might not be able to do that. Um, so it's it's very interesting. It's one of those things I think you peck at. I think older steel products are a great thing to buy because, I mean, just think the natural degradation of it is that it gets opened. Yeah. People go to a, a shop and buy a pack of Stronghold and open it. You know, they go to the shop and buy a pack of Wake and open it. Yep. You know, they flipping a rip it or pack War yeah whatever. Naturally, less and less that product exists over time. So it does have a kind of like almost like an investment value at level, and. Yes, some of it can be very expensive, but I mean, the more and more we see you know, a, a box of Unstable sell for more and more dollars than it would have originally came out, it comes out $100, now it's $130, $140, whatever it yeah. is, you know? the more items like that, Battle Bonds, stuff like that, you see it be worth whatever, how can you even say like a box of Conflux, at? and I don't even know what a box of Conflux is worth, guys, right? Yeah. But it might be $250, 300 $500, it might be $180, I don't really know, okay? but because how often do you see it right I don't you know i remember, I have to look it up but we have a, we have a guy on our website who obviously knows I don't handle that the steel items specifically we have a person who handles our steel items. just conflict um uh, just yeah he handles <laughs> just conflict the whole time no uh, <laughs> but uh you know it's something like that but you know it's in time it's only gonna be worth more so if you want to invest in it or it's cool just to open that stuff yeah you know it's you're gonna get good shape cards and everything like that. And there's an intrinsic value to opening up something like that yourself. It might be hard to be profitable if mm-hmm. you're opening it to try and immediately oh, turn yeah, profit. Absolutely. But it depends how you look at the item. I think investing in something like that's kind of a, a neat thing, but it can be very costly, as I said. Yeah, you're buying a three hundred dollar box here and three hundred dollar box there and three hundred bucks there, and your goal is to sit in it for five years. That's a lot. Eight of- years. It's tough to take that type of capital and put something in. There. That's a lot of sunk cost. You know, yeah. if you have excess, you know, funds to be able to do that, and that's your plan because you want to build some cool items in the back wall of your house, something like that. More power too, That's cool.
1: Yeah, Randy Bueller's you know? basement. Yeah. Yeah,
2: you know, it's just great to see something like that. But you know, you just know what you're getting into if you try to do that. I sometimes think of it as I keep a couple of packs or a box or something. Mostly packs for me, but of the things I like. Mm. You know, I have a pack of Arabian Nights and i love arabian nights and yes it's worth a bunch of money and no i'm not trying to sell it because i love arabian nights if i got rid of it i'd forever be like i miss my arabian nights pack
1: how's that aladdin oh
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> story for another an time. alley from Cairo. oh alley from Cairo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah that's a story oh, yeah. for another time I, there was a point and here's a funny little side story real quick one uh used to be able to buy arabian nights at a local store for 225. they eventually moved to 245 and then they moved at 265 when Antiquities came out. Yep. I stopped buying Arabian Nights because it was 265 and Antiquities was 225. I'm not going to pay for them to charge me more of those packs. Yeah. So I stopped buying Arabian Nights back then. And I had maybe 250 to 300 total Magic cards. I stopped buying Arabian Nights because I went up a little bit. Man, I wish I just would have bought the packs and held on.
1: To <laughs> What it's, was I doing? Intequities isn't a shabby set no, either. No, all of them would have been fine, yeah. right? But, you know. It's,
2: that is beautiful. It's just a crazy thing that, you know, it was hard to foresee back then that those cards were going to be even existing. Yeah. Six months later, card games, you know, it's easy now to look like, look how long Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic have been around for Back then, they didn't have that history.
1: Yeah, Pokemon's been around for 20 years. You know, I didn't realize things, that until so I was talking things to Things like today. that,
2: like, these aren't sports cards. They ain't going to last. No. Oh. You know, we yeah. weren't even sure if comic books were good back then. Yeah. Because they had gone up and down over the over the the 80s and stuff we were like in, that. Like, yeah. So it's like, it was really tough to be with Magic to really feel confident that it was a solid thing to try and hold on to. Yeah. Which is why so many cards got thrown away or whatever. There's a reason behind it all. Because you, you I bought Magic cards when I bought them. I felt, because I used to do sports cards, I started buying magic cards, I felt like I was throwing money away because i liked like to do something. It was like buying Laffy Caffey yeah. or some sort of candy you're it's just going to eat. They're done. Yeah. You know? And lo and behold, here we are, 25 years later, and you know- Anime I Boston talking about- Anime happens. Boston talking about Magic the Gathering cards and how, you know, why with Alexandria is 2000 to $2,500. <laughs> And you know, I stopped buying packs for two sixty five because I'm an idiot. You know
1: <laughs> <laughs> We've all had that moment.
2: <laughs> it even happens with newer stuff. Yeah. Scars of Meriden packs are what, like eight dollars or ten dollars? Come on. Yeah. Come on. Doesn't seem like it's that long ago, right? No, no. I, ugh,
1: I remember where I was when like the last local box of Scars and Miriam was open, and somebody texted me, like, dude, get down here. People are cracking Scars packs. They've opened a bunch of the lands. Do I still need it? Like, yeah. The, the it's is crazy. <sighs> yeah. Um, so this, this question's a, a little hard to difficult. Well, sorry. Hard, hard difficult? to difficult to answer. No, uh, hard slash difficult to answer. Because you have such a great view of you know the magic product lines that currently exist. Mm-hmm. Obviously, none for that were just announced—the Gideon Spellbook, Modern Horizons, etc. I mean,
2: you know, I hear the stuff just when everyone else possibly can. Yeah, but I am always searching for the newest information. But <laughs> but do
1: you think there are any sleeper products that just have not had time to really make the rounds? Like we talked a little bit today, you and I, and I talked to Josh, who's crunching on an apple next to me about uh battle bond you know n- getting t- close to almost a year old set came out released people loved it tanked the price on
2: yeah. a lot of cards it was it was great right off the game yeah because it was cool and a fresh way to play well happened after you played it two three times your group of people kind of stopped wanting to play because a lot of people came in to play it yep and They disappeared so what happened is it was kind of like conspiracy one where okay the fun was over. No one cares anymore. Now, there was cards that were impactful. From the start, uh, a land like Luxury Suite was a good card. Yeah, From the all, start... Yeah, all five all of the lands, Vidalcon Ori, Seaborn Muse. And what happened... And Seaborn Muse got down for like five bucks. Vidalcon
1: Ori was uh, $10, like 8 to $10. And we have yeah. it in the case for $30 today. And Seaborn
2: and Muse was, uh, was cheap, too. And, and, and then what happened is those cards were good. We all like to set it first. And then it just kind of fell off. And it's not like anyone just forgot about it, she's kind of like, okay, we're on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, shortly after that, we had a core set release, right? And yep. it was actually a good core set. It was exciting. Standard was becoming fun again. Yep. So we kind of shifted our gears in our head to what we were paying attention to. And then what happens, is not a lot of people buying buying BattleBond. They don't make a lot of print runs. And you're a year later, it's not really easy to find it, and the cards are going up, and it's like, well, look what happened. You know? If you yeah. forget, don't pay attention to it. Let's say Modern Rises comes out. It's really, it seems really great at first, but then people are like, eh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it could do the same thing. Oh, I mean, we could be talking a year from now about how I, all I, these Modern Rises cards for thirty dollars that were three dollars before. And it, I mean, we don't know how the market's going to respond. And you can't force a market to respond in any way. Yeah, it's naturally what people are going to do, and it doesn't matter on a level like what myself at Troll and Toter, or any of us who's an investor is gonna do, it matters when the random person who plays Magic once in a great while and they go and buy a pack at a store, mm-hmm. at Target, at Walmart, online, you know, they walk into the local game store, a GameStop, or whatever it is that sells cards, it matters if they're gonna buy it. Yeah. And if they're not buying it, it goes all the way down the line. You know, like they're not interested in battle bond because they had their fun. Well, if it was already intended to be a casual level product and the casual customer isn't purchasing it, it's gonna somewhere along the line have a shorter supply. Yeah. Now that could be screaming at us: we should have bought more Battle Bond cards because we saw this coming. Yeah. But how many times have you thought it was coming and it didn't happen? Yeah. So uh, there's, a, there's a part there that you you know that kind of falls into to place with everything.
1: Yeah. So it's hard to look back over the last couple of years and say and point to one specific product and say like. This one's probably a little more quiet than I think it should be. It hasn't made enough noise yet. I actually, you know, I mentioned BattleBond now, I think War of the Spark is that product. Because War of the Spark, we talked about on the podcast over the last couple of weeks, is a set that's just straight gas. But what happens shortly after War of the Spark is we moved to modern sure. with Pro Tour London and a new, and a new mulligan rule. So and uh, then,
2: War of the Spark 2 is a set that's going to come out, I guarantee you, on release going to be hot guys in a couple weeks it's going to be something everyone wants yep there's going to be a ton of cards that everyone wants to get and it's going to do it every standard set ever happens it's going to sell really good right off it might be even short short and ran first this is kind of like another dominerary yeah it might be hard to get for a little bit some stores might sell out but more will come out and eventually the cards will fall price. now if you want to tell me in the in the long term of a product like a Warless of it's immense because we have a set a month later that's gonna be impactful, it's gonna get our attention. Mm-hmm. We're gonna buy it. So maybe we don't buy as much Warless Spark as we originally thought. We will those first few weeks. Yes. Everyone will. Oh absolutely. But maybe it doesn't get quite as much love as say arrivals of X. So and and this is as the standard start to become good again. Yeah. And so what turns into it is that you're gonna be maybe not a year, four years from now, War the Spark boxes are gonna be good. Double yes. boxes are good because guess what? So get there's six planes walking through boxes. Yes. And Domino, you still get 36 legendary creatures in the box. There's a part that the next guy who comes into the game and plays it two years from now, or the guy who just came back who's not playing right now, it's gonna want that product and it's gonna keep that value. I think War of the Sparks sneaky in that way. It's I said once again it can be tough to to tie in your financial funds on grabbing some boxes and sticking aside. But you know, if you're someone who has the ability, the financial ability to put something aside and the space. Maybe a case of War of the Sparks not a bad idea. No,
1: I think a case of could War Could have a good return. I
2: think Modern Horizons could have a good return, too. Oh, I
1: think so, too. I think it's just the fact, and y- y- you are exactly on point with why, what I have been thinking since I looked at the release dates, is that we, there's too short a window between the War of the Spark release and Modern Horizon's release for War of the Spark to really gain traction and yeah. be a, a set that sells as well as WOTC wants or needs it to... Or Hasbro, the rather. The distance between and
2: War of the Spark is... Huge too. Yeah, we've Magic been in this format for like an of extra month. Slide some. There was like a little bit less activity than normal for Magic because we didn't have a March release this year. No. <laughs> and it's kind of the always been what? like a a different thing, like a a master set or something or a base set. There's always something in March. Yep. Yeah. And there was no big March boom this year. But now we're gonna get two sets. You know, not quite back to back, but pretty close. Separated true. by a Pro Tour. Yeah, like, and that's it we'll have like yeah. a pro tour and a band not restricted. a pro tour anymore sir. it's a mythic, mythic invitational mythic invitational
1: I'm sorry <laughs> a mythic invitational and a band restricted announcement I think <coughs> that separates two set releases and so I think that Modern Horizons is the set that's going to dominate the summer into our fall set and thus War of the Spark kind of falls away for we a have a corset too
2: yes and that's it the, the summer design, set like the last corset the last corset was great yeah for what it's supposed to be it was great for Magic so it could that could be another good set as well like I think the design team they got right now is doing great things yeah. with this sets, and I th- I feel very optimistic about the game in general. Yeah, and I think a lot of people feel optimistic about math in general. It's a good game. I, yeah, I think everything's in a solid. Lots of different formats you can play with, and stuff like that. And the products are just strong. And yes, there is something where the power level feels like it's rising up. Power, for the record, power levels always seem like it's rising up unless things really suck. Until we go back unless to the. Unless we get dragons, maybe. Well, Kamigawa was supposed to slow it down. I know, and so it's eight level. But we, novel, know, when no, we no, play I'm our commander deck. decks. There's always Kamigawa cards in your commander decks, isn't there? Top is great. Sakura tribe
1: elder, you know, great. Koki show, like, great. Kiki Jiki, great.
2: like there's always fan favorites in there. Yeah, certain cards, you know, these lands, Those goofy and, lands, yeah, you know, like all kinds of neat cards. We were talking about this on the way down too. Jirachi and Arashi, and the, there's cards that are neat, you know, and they, they get. Those cards get forgotten over time yeah. because like, that was supposed to be a slow down block. I loved playing that block. I played the Pro Tortoise block. It was awesome. People played Gifts on Givens. And it was the best control. deck. But there were some weird decks. And it's the Godo, Wonder Worn, Shaku, Legend deck. And there was some neat ideas in that that whole format. It was great in its own thing. So the design team did good. Yeah. I think right now it's the design team is great. So it keeps magic well. But the two sets of. in a one time frame is. Yeah very interesting, and it's tough on all of our budgets. It's all of our walls. It's going to be a little tough on it, but the fact that we've had a certain amount of time without anything, maybe it's going to be okay. I think we know
1: we get a commander set this year, so overall the (coughs) number of sets and releases discounting discounting the spell book and uh, all the mythic editions it's not a wallet fatigue kind of year the way the Eternal Masters year was where that, that, that year was just pumping it's like every month and a half we had a new release yeah. it just seems like the timeline from War of the Spark release and I didn't even think about Core 2020 is so much that I, War of the Spark comes and goes I think quickly. May,
2: June, July Magic is going to be crazy there's two set releases yeah. a lot of excitement around the game a lot of big events going on. Like back-to-back-to-back to back to back awesome weekends of CLGPs, like yeah. Or Mythic Inputationals. Myth- and it's <laughs> yeah. going to be an exciting time for Magic. And I think the game is going to be on fire in general. Yeah. It's just going to be a lot of people wanting to play and do stuff like that. And that happens every now and then. And when that buzz happens, I'll be honest with you from the finance committee, cards go up. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, residually, there will, some cards will go up because they're selling good. Because when the higher percentage of the game is playing... There's just interaction and stuff like that, yep. so I think it's going to become a really hot time for magic. I'm not saying we're in store for another boom of any kind, oh, but no. I could see the game rising in a lot of areas. And if there's a lot of people playing the game, a lot of people putting money in the game, it could spread across the board in all these different formats yeah. too. So absolutely, you know, we might see some old school cards go up. We might see reserveless cards go up. We might see some middle school cards go yeah. up. Some popper cards go up. Some.
1: Build your own block cards, or oh, yeah. you know, whatever format they put out on a that they said yeah, they're going when to. Whenever they're
2: going to make the the new frontier or whatever it's going to be called format. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming, guys. But modern's going to be more like legacy, legacy than you think, and it's going to be more attainable than legacy cards were. But it's it's going to be more like you think, just because the amount of time that exists between all this. You know, we're talking about modern the card frames. How many years? Are Eighth possesses? edition was like two thousand years. 16, 2003, I think. It's 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 ridiculous when you start thinking about the time that's in that's involved yeah. in that. So it's like, you know, it, it's just inevitable that there will be more format. It's scary to think it, but, it's you know, it's inevitable. No, it is. All right, and last question
1: on the way out, and I'm hoping there's a succinct answer to this because I've got no friggin' idea. <laughs> What's happened to the price of bulk over the last couple of years?
2: Price of bulk? Yeah. Well, the amount of, you know, the last as we talked about before with some bulk stuff is yep. that... The amount of the bulk that's needed in the market is just last for the most part. A lot of people have it. The more sets they've made, the more cards people have sent in their house. Yep. And when people don't need a lot of bunch of uh, big lot of cards as many people as used in the past, like every vendor used to be buying it, yep. now they're not. It just creates just no need, so the price goes down. Doesn't mean bulk's bad. No. No. But just understand that. Like, okay, a bulk rare. There was a point in time when a bulk rare was 25 cents. you go to a grant. I'm talking about 2002. 2002. 2003 you go to a grant you can get 25 cents for all the bulk rares. Yeah. It's Before ridiculous. the Age of Mythics. Yeah. You know? Then there's a point in time when it was 20 cents, then 18 cents, 15 cents, 12 cents. 12 cents for years. Yep. 10 years. 10 cents for, like, 5 years. Now it's like, you go to those Eight. people and they're like... 5 cents. If they... want do pay 5 cents? And they're only... That's not... That's not an insult to person. And they have to be like the
1: three local vendors at the yeah, Grand right
2: There's just... It, it, you know, there's a point where it's whatever. So, yes, it might nat, it might naturally... You know, we might be at a point where both players are eventually a penny. Like, which is crazy. Yeah. Because that's... The penny's not a whole lot of money. Yeah, um, what do you think about that? that yeah, yeah, yeah. But if no one needs it, that's just the, the... Whatever. I mean, there's also a point where people just will say no. There's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot more vendors now at some of these events that won't buy your foil cards because they don't sell fast and their business model is not for that. It yeah, depends awesome. on, it depends on the yeah. event you go to and who the vendors are.
1: Yeah, you got to put a lot of capital in the foils. I so. mean, as
2: Troll and Toad, if I had to choose, how we're buying cards, I want to buy a lot less foils than non-foils because I'm going to sell the non-foil cards faster. Yeah, and that's just the it nature of the business. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, it doesn't mean I hate foils. We love foils. <laughs> yeah. We're one of the best people for buying foils, I think, online. Um, like, you know, I'm pretty sure of that, actually, one of the bigger ones. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's it's just the nature of things and stuff like that, how people's business models and stuff are. Yeah. But bulk is in the same line where if there's no necessity for something like that, there's no driving force to make us all need it. And it just becomes progressively worth um, less than it was before. Yeah. You know? Now, it's probably not going to get to the point of the, the sports card world where... You know, a five k is worth a buck. You might as well just put it in your fireplace and warm your house. Yeah. You know, there's a point where they call—they actually call a large portion of years when they made sets and sports cards the junk era. Yeah. It's not worth anything. So it's many garbage. companies making and people so are like, much garbage. hey, I got this stuff from the late '80s, or '90s, or the early 2000s. I want to sell it all. And for sports cards, and you're just like, is it ain't worth anything. And they're like, but it's 20 years old. It's like, yeah, but they made so much of it. Yeah. You know. Um, I don't think it's going to get to that point because magic is a game where all the cards have potential use. Yes, there's so uh, many ways There's to play is the a game. value that's intrinsic, but um, you know I think Matt Bolt continues to progressively go downward. I don't necessarily know if there'll be some way to make that change to an upper passion. Now, if the game explodes in terms of players and 25%, 30 percent more players start playing the game, it could go up because if thirty percent more play- people that exist in the game. Currently, or if thirty more percent more players play in the game than there is now, if there are any more different cards, formats? It might just cause a want, but it's, I would not put a bank into something like that. Yeah, be very tough. Um, I think just the the bulk is just a, it's kind of just going to keep growing a little bit down, but we might see more types of bulk things in the future than we've seen in the past become something. Okay. Do you mean like in the sense that some people bulk sell- masterpieces, bulk mythic editions? Okay. Bo- bo- things that you've never thought about, because the okay. more times they print some of these types of cards, yeah, the, you know, the more the more likely it is to eventually become a bulk type. Yeah, you know, like we all remember there was a time when bulk mythics were a dollar, or bulk mythics were seventy-five cents. Because they were never brand ended. new. Yeah. Yeah, and now I there's so many and so many products that a bulk mythic. Some people might pay fifteen cents or twenty cents for them. You know, they're not quite the value they once were. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But it could eventually. I don't know where the game's How many going to more times can you print Time or Go if before yeah. it costs
1: more than $10? Like, before it drops below Well, $10. I mean, that's
2: that's a playable card. I'm just saying, the, the, you know, the... Yeah, backside, yeah, I mean, Masterpieces, they'd have to do a lot more Masterpieces to get to a point where yeah, there's yeah. a bulk, but, you know, there's always a point where that might be a thing, so there might be a new terminology on the style of cards we want to buy. Okay. Um, but it's really tough to say that it's a, it's a solid investment, because oh, the nature like, of the market just says that it's declining, and... It's declining because the amount of it out there for sale is vastly higher than the amount of people want to in buy it. Demand, yeah. When I say vastly, I and mean, I could easily go out and buy 50, 60 million bulk we magic. You could probably cards line up and buy right now, we I walk could line it. Right I can line it up pretty fast. In a couple yeah. weeks, I could have 50, 60 million bulk well, magic. Well, cards. not even that. I don't know what I would do with it.
1: Tonight, it's close to midnight now. We're in Boston. We could probably put an ad out on Craigslist and have people meet us tomorrow and yeah, pick, pick up like five digits of bulk maybe, easily. Maybe,
2: maybe 10,000, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just it's, uh, I think there's people that are out there and stuff like that, and it's just because uh, they make all these different sets and a lot more sets they used to make. There's, yeah, there's more bulk accruing and product, too, and that's yeah. just a natural thing. Yeah, you know, we might be entering an age in the future where no one buys both. You know, it might. It's hard for me to say that's going to happen. Yeah, but I don't know. Once, you know, they get to the point where they start making more and more sets, they seem like they like to put a lot of products out. Yep, I don't know. I, I don't
1: know. Not yet. Not everything is always playable. Not everything is always useful. And it's just sure. going to move. That way. If they get to
2: the point where they're making a set every month, you know, like well, who's who, gonna who's gonna be able to afford it? I can't foresee game. that. If you you say that, but six years ago, you could bank on it, it was four before master sets existed. Yeah, It was four sets a year. Yep. Yeah. Just the, the four. sets. Now how many we get? Nine, uh, eight. Geez. Yeah, Commander products. You know, your spellkeeper spell books yeah, and your yeah. Challenger decks and your. There's all these different There are a happen. ton of products. There a yeah. ton of products, but every year, yeah. They snuck it in on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're trying to figure and, out as many interesting they do things in they the, money. They do it in the smart way, though, because yeah. they make things like a challenger deck where it's not going to break your bank. No. You know, but uh, they do. You know, they put a lot more and it's not items.
1: And it's not Konami style, where they waited three months, then printed for Arc
2: Light Phoenix. But if the game blows up, and you know, once again, it's all hypothetical 30% yeah. more people start playing the game than they are right now, they're going to have to make more cards for people to get them. But uh, it they could, it, I they could also they could also shrink print quantity too. Hypothetical situation So they
1: they could also shrink print run too. Sure. You know, instead of overprinting to demand, they could actually print to demand instead. One thing I
2: don't, I don't want to see them go the sports card route and start numbering all the cards. No, I I already hate the idea of foiling cards. I hated it back in the day. I hate creating different versions of items because. The in the end, the goal is to play the game. It splits. It splits your customer base it's, into it's different It's against. Uh, yes, I understand. I work in an industry where I sell cards. You know, we're in an industry where people buy and sell cards. But for the wholesome of the game, it's just about having the cards. Yeah. You know, is is the living card game thing? You know, playing like a Dominion really a something that's against what we're trying to do. You know I, I, it's, it's it would work for that game you know oh absolutely it would work for magic and stuff like that too so i don't
1: know now it i don't know it's an interesting proposition when it comes to <laughs> to bulk and how to how to look at it and how to deal with it it's just been interesting to watch the, the price of bulk i don't maybe interesting not the right word horrifying for some people i guess watching the price of bulk, bulk drop yeah like I don't know. I never banked on bulk. I, I never will bank on bulk. It's nice to make like I don't know forty or fifty bucks when I bring in my bulk from just opening my judge rewards and whatever And in another right game like
2: Pokemon. We've seen in the last five years, Pokemon bulk go from being worth ten dollars a thousand. Yep. To ninety dollars a thousand, and back down to like twenty dollars, fifteen dollars per thousand, and, and it bounces around the map. Yeah. And that's a game where there is a live market buying that that type of item. So it's just like it's to scary. see the, 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 the veracity of that market shift.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, like, man, now we have a market full of items that no one wants. <laughs> it's like, ah.
1: I mean, To be fair, if you don't play EDH, that kind of feels what most Magic sets are at yeah. some point. But yeah, that's neither here nor there. conversation. But that's the last question uh, we had from our patrons and from uh, the guys in our, our Cabalcast Discord is there anything
2: we left out or anything you feel we left out or anything you want to touch on real quick before we sign off? Oh, okay. I can't think of anything. I've talked to a whole bunch of stuff like that. Yeah. You know, check out yeah. Uh You know, I, I, I think we have a great site and we have a lot of great products. It, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, we do a lot of great things on there and uh, we carry a lot of items that some people don't even try to carry. We try to do the best we can. Yeah. You know, I've really worked on it the past few years. Trying to make it be like the company I remember it was, you know, twenty years ago. And back
1: when the site was yellow and yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, I always try to like try to make us as good as possible. And I think we do a really good job. I can tell the customer shop lists a ton and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, the times were tough for a, a hot minute, and like sure. we're, and there's always like different people and
2: different things like that that yeah. involve the positions. And, and you guys pulled through and
1: yeah. like
2: try to make a good good thing. Try we care about magic. We want to do the good things with magic. Care about over uh, but you know and uh, we care about our customers um, and every now and then someone's going to get upset but the bigger you are the more likely it's going to oh, happen someone's more... going to get angry at you about something that happens and maybe they'll understand the circumstance and you know we're going to try and make it the best we can yeah. you know and uh, there's so many people who are so happy with orders with us all the time and stuff like that or just they come by our booth even at this show yeah like I love Troll, Troll you know whenever I need cards I come to com for something and it's it's awesome when you hear something like that. Oh, yeah. It, you know? Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, people have, have brought up in, uh, in, in the finance subreddit as detractors for the podcast as a whole that they didn't like that I work for Troll and Toad or that I didn't disclose that I work for Troll and Toad. And that, that's not the case. I do not work yeah. for Troll and Toad. I did work for Troll and Toad. You did once upon time there. You lived bo- in Corbin? Li- yep. Banjos and all. And before, <laughs> before and after. I, I still do work for Troll and Toad as a contract sure. employee to come out and, and well, you're do still shows. my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, beyond that, yeah, you were in my wedding. Yeah. And <laughs> if I didn't still believe in the product, I wouldn't have bought a bazaar sure. off the website. Yeah. You know, in the last two years, I wouldn't have gone to Troll and Toad to buy seventy-four
2: expansion explosions yeah. to buy yeah. my like. I'll tell you, Reddit loves to loves to pick on us. Yeah. But um, and you know what? There was a point in time seven eight nine years ago hey you know what a lot of the stuff they did was bad but you know what they got some people that really care about doing the right things the right way there and they've come a long way since that time frame. oh yeah absolutely you know it's just it's a, it's, a, it's a great place i mean that's why i came back i came back to troll and toad um after leaving it trying to do my own business because honestly i was working all the time and it's hard to do your own business it really is and the, the aspiration for where i was getting to I, I was just growing a level like I couldn't even fathom where I was going to be and I and I didn't see I was working all the time I had no fun and I went to a place to work back to work there have a ton of friends and I work in a great atmosphere and I do the thing I, I love to do and it's just with a lot of people that I love to be with all the time and oh, it's just, yeah. there's a lot to that you know and I'm not trying to do everything by myself I got a team of people Oh, yeah, for those yeah, who don't know, 100%. Troll and Toad has a lot of employees. Couple hundred. Yeah, it's got over a hundred employees, yeah. and the building itself, you know, there's there's a lot of people around. Yeah. You know? And a lot of people we know inside, like you know, community, the, you know, friends. Yeah. You know, what I'm saying so. Like the outreach is, is is great. It's a big place, and it's just it feels great to be part of something that's huge, bigger than yourself. You know? yeah. and if some people don't realize that there's a company that's been a Fortune 500 online seller, like. You know their company that does, you know, uh, mid lot, mid yeah. to high, uh, high. Uh, what's it called? Uh, nine nine digits? Seven, seven? Eight eight digits? Eight digits. Yeah. digits. Mid to high eight digits. You know, like they're like what? You know, they they don't even know all those different product lines. A lot of yeah. product lines, guys. They sell you know? video
1: games and coffee.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of things going on there, but they're a big company, and it's yeah. it's great to be part of something like that, and. And being in an atmosphere where we're always trying to do something greater, and it's tough because there's a lot of people out there who are really focused on something, and we have a big company trying to do a lot of things, a lot of products, a lot of lines. Oh, absolutely. We try, you know, and and, uh, to be some part of something and have the, the outreach of friends, something that we do, it's just great for our company, so.
1: Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad I was able to to do this and find the time to to sit down with you and get this done. It's something I wanted to do for a while. This is actually, uh, it's either week 26 or 27. I've got to look. And if it's 26, it's a great midway point for our, our first year to have somebody from within the industry, you sure. know, sit down and talk to us from an entity that's been around since, nigh, uh, yeah, I'm almost the beginning. There. Well, not just you, but the company as a whole. We've, we're we're <laughs> yes, getting oh, there. Yes. <laughs> we're both getting there. We're we're no longer spring chickens, yeah, but for sure. you know. And, and I'll I'll sign us out here. You know, uh, you can find me on Twitter at halt. I am Reptar. The podcast is uh, at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter uh, and Patreon MTG Cabalcast. I'm, I'm sitting here with one of my best friends, uh, yeah. Jeremy Muir Where can they find I have a
2: Twitter account? It's J E R M U R R R. It's a Canadian thing. I don't even know the password germ-mer. to check it. But it's there.
1: Where can know, they find you next? Where do you know what to? event you're going what's the next one you're going to?
2: Is um it- the next event I will be at will Gen- major events.
0: Well oh, Seattle. I'll,
2: I'll probably be at GPCL. Okay. Um, there's a few other events, some anime conventions I'm probably going to do one from somewhere along the way, but um, I'll definitely be at uh, GP Seattle and
1: then after that it's Gen Con like, well, I, after I that it's...
2: definitely be Gen Con for sure yeah. so you know I'll be getting around a little bit traveling here and there I said a couple events but those are some of my main ones I'll be at Yeah. and um, you know you can come check it out and uh, see me there and say hi and stuff like that I'm an easy guy to talk to and, and Absolutely. Uh, I have a lot of people I've met over the years and they're have great people and I hope to meet more people as we go forward yeah alright
1: thanks guys so for listening we'll see you next week yeah, it's a pleasure